I'm a first-year psychology student here at UWA. Um, I'll be reading a part of the passage for today from 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1 to 12. Kejalan kasih itu dan sarankanlah dirimu memperoleh karunia karunia terutama karunia untuk bernubuat. Siapa yang berkata-kata dengan bahasa roh tidak berkata-kata kepada manusia, tetapi kepada Allah. Sebab tidak ada seorang pun yang mengerti bahasanya oleh roh yang mengucapkan hal-hal yang rahasia. Tetapi siapa yang bernubuat, ia berkata-kata kepada manusia, ia membangun, menasihati, dan menghibur. Siapa yang berkata-kata dengan bahasa roh, ia membangun dirinya sendiri. Tetapi siapa yang bernubuat, ia membangun iman. Aku suka supaya kamu semua berkata-kata dengan bahasa roh, tetapi lebih daripada itu supaya kamu bernubuat. Sebab orang yang bernubuat lebih berharga daripada orang yang berkata-kata dengan bahasa roh, kecuali kalau orang itu juga menafsirkannya, sehingga iman dapat dibangun. Jadi saudara-saudara, jika aku datang kepadamu dan berkata-kata dengan bahasa roh, apakah gunanya itu bagimu jika aku tidak menyampaikannya kepadamu penyataan Allah atau pengetahuan atau nubuat atau pengajaran? Sama hanya dengan alat-alat yang tidak berjiwa, tetapi yang berbunyi, seperti seruling dan kecapi. Bagaimanakah orang dapat mengetahui lagu apakah yang dimainkan seruling atau kecapi? Kalau keduanya tidak mengeluarkan bunyi yang berbeda, atau jika nafiri tidak mengeluarkan bunyi yang terang, siapakah yang menyiapkan diri untuk berperang? Demikianlah juga kamu yang berkata-kata dengan bahasa roh. Jika kamu tidak mempergunakan kata-kata yang jelas, bagaimanakah orang dapat mengerti apa yang kamu katakan? Kata-katamu sia-sia saja kamu ucapkan di udara. Ada banyak tentang berapa banyak macam bahasa di dunia. Sekalipun demikian, tidak ada satupun di antaranya yang mempunyai bunyi yang tidak berani. Tetapi jika aku mengetahui arti bahasa itu, aku menjadi orang asing bagi dia yang mempergunakannya, dan orang as- dia orang asing bagi Demikian pula dengan kamu, kamu memang berusaha untuk memperoleh karunia-karunia roh, tetapi lebih daripada itu, hendaklah kamu berusaha mempergunakannya untuk membangun jemaah. There, I'm Joshua, and I'm studying the Master of International Relations. I'll be reading from verse 1 to 26 in English. Uh, feel free to follow along in your handout. Um, so, from verse 1. Follow the way of love, and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in tongues does not speak to the people, but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in tongues edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophecy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be edified. Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will it be to you, unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy? or word of instruction. Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds such as the pipe or harp, how will anyone know what the tune is being 
played unless there is a distinction in the notes. Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You will be just speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then, I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. So it is with you. Since you are eager for gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that feel like the church. For this reason, the one who speaks in tongues should pray that they may interpret what they say. For if I pray in tongues, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with the Spirit, but I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing with the Spirit, but I will also sing with my understanding. Otherwise, when you are praising God in the Spirit, how can someone else, who is put in the position of the inquirer, say Amen to your thanksgiving, since they do not know what you are saying? You are giving thanks well enough, but no one else is edified. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. But in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regards to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. In the law, it is written. With other tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, but even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues, then, are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues, and inquirers and unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they will be convicted of sin and brought under judgment by all, as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built. Thanks, Richie and uh, Josh. Um, just one last notice to bring your attention on the back of the outline of the newsletter. Uh, you'll find a thing on love, sex, marriage, and singleness. Is anybody interested in any of those topics? No, okay, I won't check it in. Um, just some advance notice. We're going to do a day. Uh, it's between MYC and the beginning of second semester, the last Friday uh, before second semester starts. So put it in your diary and we'll send you more details uh, uh, as it comes to light. choose what gifts and abilities you had, what would you choose? Imagine you can go to a supermarket and they're all on the shelves there. You, know, you could run like Usain Bolt. You could have the wit of Jim Perry. You could have the brains of Stephen Hawking. You could have the beauty of Scarlett Johansson, the voice of Taylor Swift. What would you go for? What, what, what are the gifts that you would like? Uh, I, I was disappointed that whenever the gifts were being handed out, somehow musical ability 
didn't come my direction. A friend of mine was a music teacher. She claimed she could take, teach anyone to sing in tune until she heard me sing. <laughs> but whatever words you want, why there? What will it enable you to do to achieve? I think in our culture, especially those who make it to this prestigious place like UWA, your gifts and abilities, your talents, are for your career. I worked in an office as an engineer uh, for a couple of years, and uh, we had an office girl who did all the menial tasks. She got clean coffee, she filed papers away. Uh, but in her spare time, she was doing her matriculation, her waste exams. When the results came out, she got in the top 0.2% of the state. She made it into medicine. And so everyone in the office said, oh, you've got to go into medicine. Just, just go. If you get in, you must do it. So she enrolled in uni, quit a job. Uh, and after one term of medicine, she quit medicine. She had no interest in it whatsoever. But we have this idea that if you can do it, you should use it in your career. Come to uni, be trained in whatever you're talented in. You probably went to a career guidance officer at some point. Do you have those at high school? Career guidance counsellor? Um, and, and to try and work out, well, what, what do I do? What job do I get? And I presume what they did was they looked at your abilities. That should determine what you do for your job. And for most of us, we want those abilities that will open doors to a successful career. And unfortunately, in the affluent West, Christians have baptised that idea. We feel obligated to use whatever God-given talents we have for our job, in our career, come to uni and study, med or law or engineering or sport or whatever it might be. And Paul's going to question that culture today. Now the reality is, I think, that all of us have more gifts than we can ever use in one lifetime. More gifts than we can develop uh, in a few years, even a few decades. And so you're forced to choose which gifts you will use. And Paul's going to speak about that today. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you'll know that in chapters 12 and 13 of 1 Corinthians, Paul has been talking about gifts and abilities and church. But in chapter 13, he's talked about this revolution, moving from a way of gifts to a way of love. And in one sense, chapter 14 is the purpose. Because if you've understood chapter 13, well, it, it all just falls into place easily. But Paul applies it to the Corinthian situation, spells out the implications, so I'll have to crack at it as well. And as he does, he touches on a number of other significant issues. Things like, what is church for? What's the place of the mind? And he lobs a few hand grenades into their midst. Well, if you were with us last week, chapter 13 is about the way of love. Instead of the way of gifts, that's the Corinthians' way of doing it, it's the way of gifts, but Paul says, no, the way of love is God's way, it's best which starts not with what gifts I've got, what abilities I might be given, looking inward, but instead looking outward to the needs of others, which is exactly what you see in Jesus, isn't it? He didn't say, I'm really gifted at dying. He said, I needed, uh, I needed Jesus to die for me. He saw that need and stepped in to do something. Does that mean gifts are irrelevant? No. But what it means is the way of love will push me to want and use some particular gifts and not others. Cottesloe Beach, a group of swimmers are swept out to sea. What gift do you want? Well, playing guitar isn't that helpful. Being able to solve complex quadratic equations is not much help. What you need is to be able to swim, isn't it? And so love will drive you to want some gifts and use some gifts over others. And chapter 14 is this extended contrast between two different gifts, tongues and prophecy. 
and, and it's clear that Paul favours prophecy over tongues. But the immediate difficulty is, what is he talking about? What are tongues? What is prophecy? Well, Paul knew what he was talking about. The Corinthians knew what he was talking about. But when 2,000 years later, we're not quite sure. Some of us come from churches where prophecy and or tongues are used, at least those labels are used, and we assume they're talking about the same thing. Others of us come from churches where they're not used at all and the labels aren't used and this just freaks us out. Well, let's go backwards a little bit and explore what Paul actually says about prophecy. He doesn't actually tell us all that much in this verse 26 verses. He tells us in verse 3 that prophecy is speaking to people for their strengthening, their building up, the encouraging and comfort of people. It has positive effects for the people around you that you practice prophecy on. And verse 9 implies that, unlike tongues, it's intelligible. The hearer can understand it, and therefore they can get on board with what you're saying. Now, so far, if that's all you've got, that covers a pretty wide range of speaking activities, doesn't it? Reading scripture, singing songs, uh, fiery preaching. Uh, Yet Paul can distinguish between the gifts of apostleship, teaching, and prophecy. Somehow they're not all exactly the same thing. We'll come back to that later. What about tongues? What are tongues? Well, the word tongue here that does firstly refer to this thing inside your mouth. But by extension, in that culture and in ours, it refers to languages. Your mother tongue is not about the, the organ inside your mother's mouth, it's what you speak from when you were a little kid. We use it that way, and it's the same word, the same sort of uh, range of meanings in Greek. And, and we can see from verse 5 where he says uh, that uh, you're not speaking it, uh, sorry. He who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, and then someone interprets, so the church may be edified. Tongues can be interpreted, that is, translated, like any normal language can. It's got real content to it. It's not mere gibberish. But verse 14, though, where Paul talks about, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful, it seems like there's some sort of disconnect. Your mind isn't engaged when you speak in tongues. It's not as if you've learnt another language, like Indonesian, and now you just speak it thoroughly. But somehow you speak a language without knowing what you're saying. It seems mere gibberish to you. Now, there's lots of things that are like that. There's some people here who can read machine code for computers. And if I looked at machine code, it would look like mere gibberish, but it actually has content to it if I could just interpret, translate it. Well, maybe tongues are like that. In verse 2, we're told that in tongues... Uh, you are addressing God in praise or prayer or some other form, but it's addressed towards God, not towards other people. And most of us, I guess, are aware that in the last hundred years or so, tongues has become both quite a prominent issue amongst Christians and a contentious issue. Pentecostalism began in 1906 in the modern era, and it swept the world, putting tongues very firmly uh, on, on, uh, on the table. It's difficult to know whether what people call tongues today is the same as what Paul is talking about and was practised in Corinth. The research suggests that it's probably not. But what I want to say is, you don't need to know what prophecy and tongues were back then to understand what Paul's saying. The principles of the chapter can be applied to any gift, any activity that you might have, that you might consider. Paul picks on tongues because that's the issue in Corinth. That's the one they're enamoured with, they love they're into in a big way. Well, it's clear if you've listened at all to this chapter that Paul is in favour of prophecy over tongues. You pick it up in, in verse 1 of chapter 14. 
follow the way of love, eagerly desire gifts, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue doesn't speak to people but to God. But the one who prophesies, verse 3, speaks to people for their strengthening. And verse 5, he's going to say, the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so the church might be edified. He actually spends 25 verses, the first 25, trying to persuade the Corinthians that prophecy is better than tongues. It's not easy to shift them. They're pretty stuck in their ways of thinking tongues are terrific. And there's a few key concepts he uses to try and persuade them and us. The first is the idea of edification. Now, what's edification? It comes a few times in this chapter. Sometimes it's translated edify. Sometimes, or strengthen, sometimes it's translated build or build up. It's all, all the same word. And it's a metaphor. It's a metaphor taken from the building industry, or, if you're younger than that, from Lego. You build things with Lego blocks, don't you? You get them and you build them and you make a building or a house block. You level the land and there's nothing there. And then you put a slab down and you put bricks up and formwork and, and framework and then you fill in that framework and, and, and as more and more of it's filled in so that the house, the building gets bigger, it gets stronger. And it's an image that God uses often in his word to talk about what church is. So in Matthew chapter 16, Peter says, you are the Christ. And Jesus says, on, on this rock, I will build my church. This is the metaphor. I will build my church. A church is people. You don't sort of literally build people. You're not a brick that is going to get put into some, some sort of house somewhere. But it, it's picture language. It's about building people like you build a building. Or well, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul says to the Corinthians, you are God's building. I laid the foundation. There's only one foundation for God's building. That's Jesus. And others are building on that foundation. As they go about interacting with each other, some are building with good quality material, some shoddy material. But all of us are building one way or another. And Paul says about tongues, that they can edify yourself in verse 4. That is, they're not wrong, but that's so much less than, less valuable than edifying the church. So in verse 17, he's talking about tongues. He says, with tongues you might be giving thanks well enough, but no one is edified. And for Paul, that's a, a pretty severe criticism of it. But prophecy, he says, it's terrific. It's really good at edifying the church. So back in verse 12, since you're eager for gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church, like prophecy. Now this building has sort of three ideas all incorporated. One is expansion. New people built into as they come to faith in Jesus. The second is each person who is part of, of Jesus' building being strengthened in their faith, in their hope, in their love. They're maturing in Christ. The third idea is that they're doing that together. They're interlocking. And so together they're becoming stronger and more stable and firm. And Paul says love, the way of love, seeks the good of others. So what's good for you? Well, lots of things are good for you. It's good for you to be clothed. It's good for you to be healthy. It's probably good for you to pass your exams. All sorts of things are good for you. But what's primarily good? What, what, what's good par excellence? Well, it's being built in Jesus Christ. That's what, that's what really is good for you. So you've got exams coming up. Some of you might be feeling sick. Some of you, life's just cruising. You, you, you're just sort of peddling along. What's going to count on the last day, on the day of accounting? 
Well, it's not going to be whether you got a credit or a distinction in that exam, but whether you, you come to that day trusting and rejoicing in the Lord Jesus. But what will matter on that day is not your health, but whether you've persevered through good health and bad health. That, that's what's going to matter. And therefore, edifying others matters more than other things. And prophecy, he says, can edify. If I come with tongues, I can't. I can only do it if I come with something that will actually strengthen you and build you up. And some gifts are terrible at doing that, and some are terrific at doing that. So the terrible, and this is his main point, tongues are actually pretty terrible. <laughs> They're just not very good at building others up, but prophecy, it's pretty good at doing it. So, choose prophecy over tongues. The second key concept is intelligible. Especially comes in verses 6 to 18. He says that tongues on their own, without being interpreted, are not intelligible. Now, I don't know how you responded when Rishi got up and read to us in Indonesian. I hope that part of you rejoiced in that. Isn't it terrific that the Gospel, the, the Word of God, is available to people of all sorts of different languages? I hope you're not so uh, English-centred, or, or, or whatever the, the word is for that, that you presented it. I hope not. And yet I presume you found it confusing. Like, it's nice to hear Indonesian. Sounds good, but I didn't have a clue what he was saying. How can that edify me? It, it can't, unless you understand, can it? And that's Paul's point. And verse 7, even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, like a pipe or harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there's a distinction in the notes? Again, if a trumpet doesn't sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? In the army, they used to use trumpets to signal what the army was to do. Advance, retreat, lie down on the ground and, and just give up, surrender. And, and you had to have different notes, different little tunes that would indicate the different things. Now, imagine the trumpet had just got up and go, <laughs> just one sound. If you don't understand the distinction in notes, you don't understand the message, it doesn't help you one bit. You might say, he's a terrific trumpet player. Go to the academy of, of music and learn to play brilliantly. But it doesn't help you in battle. It's no use to you. And that's Paul's point. And so he says in verse 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, but in the church, I'd rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. It's like saying, I'd rather have five genuine dollars than a thousand monopoly dollars. And you would, wouldn't you? And so five words that people can understand, then 10,000 words that they can't understand, much better. Not just because of the length, but because they're intelligible. The tongues, he says, in church, are about as useful as a smartphone without a screen. But prophecy, on the other hand, it's good. It may not be as exciting as impressive, but if you love people, that's what you want, isn't it? It leads to clear-cut preference on Paul's part for prophecy over tongues. In church, his decision is, I just want to prophesy. I don't want to speak in tongues, even though he's really good at it. Now, there's another reason for the preference, which has to do with outsiders, which comes in verses 20, uh, 20 to 25. See, some might argue back to Paul saying, oh, hold on a minute. Aren't tongues a great sign for outsiders? A non-Christian comes in, they hear people speaking in tongues, and it's exciting, and it's clearly supernatural. Surely that will do great things for them. Well, this is what Paul says. Verse 23, If the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues, and inquirers or unbelievers come in, when they say you're out of your mind, 
They just say you're crazy. This is just a. They're, they're mad, these people. They just carry on in all this stuff that no one understands. But verse 24 if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they'll be convicted of sin and brought under judgment by all, and the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. So they'll fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. See what Paul's saying? To summarise it, prophecy has a real capacity to build God's church. So the way of love leads you to not use tongues, but want to prophesy. Even if it's unclear what prophecy and tongues are, the principles are clear. Love will lead you to want to edify those around you. And edification is done by intelligible words that encourage and instruct them. You see the implication? There are some gifts that you might have that he doesn't want you to use in church. Other gifts he wants you to major on, to desire and to use. If your tendency is to go to church, to have your own personal experience of God, maybe facilitated by the crowd, by the music, by the the lights or the non-lights, and you want to close your eyes and just just have that personal intimacy between you and God. Well, it says, no, you've misunderstood church. You don't love if that's what if that's the way you do it. See, Corinth was like that as a church. And Paul wants to correct them. Now, love wants to build others up. And so he says in verse 26, to pull it together, what then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn, or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation, for everything must be done so that the church may be built up, might be edified. And then, in verses 26 to 40, he gives some practical guidelines on how that's going to work out. We haven't read this, so let me read some bits of it. 27. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at most three should speak one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there's no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself, uh, to himself and to God. That is, I presume he means at home, rather than when he's gathered with others. That is, he puts real restrictions on tongues. And this is interpreters, just don't use them at church. And even if they, they are translated, interpreted, then, at, then only two or maybe three. That is, it's not to dominate. And then it's got to be one at a time. No chaotic free-for-all where everybody speaks in tongues at the same time. Just don't do it. That's to misunderstand church. And then he talks about prophecy. Verse 29. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. If a revelation comes to someone who's sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. Prophecy is to be encouraged. Two or three are to speak. But it's critical that the prophecy itself is weighed up, is evaluated. That is, the content of prophecy varies enormously. Some's gold, some's rubbish. Some can edify, but it might not. It depends on the content. And so he suggests really that you put it forward tentatively, more like a suggestion. Uh, unlike the Old Testament prophets that said, thus says the Lord. Prophecy here is more like, I wonder if it's this. Could it be? He gives us a bit more information about prophecy, what it is. It instructs and encourages in verse 31. That is, it teaches things so that we learn. And verse 30, it can come by revelation. Maybe before you get to church, because somebody comes with one, or during, while somebody else is speaking, something pops into your head. Now, for most of us, revelation sounds a bit spooky, doesn't it? If a revelation comes. But I actually think it's pretty common. I'm in a few Bible study groups, 
And often what happens in the Bible study group is we're trying to wrestle with something and try and nut it out. And, and somebody in the group will say, oh, I wonder if it means X, Y, Z. You think, oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, it might actually, mightn't it? Or somebody else says, this is, this is what God was saying, maybe one of the implications is we do this differently in church or in our home lives or in our family life. Now, that's a revelation, isn't it? It's an idea that's popped into somebody's head in the middle of trying to work out what God's Word is saying. That's pretty normal. It's happening all the time in the groups I'm in. And that sort of thing needs weighing, doesn't it? Often it's really helpful. Sometimes it's not. The group or some, some people in the group need to say, yeah, actually, I think that is what it's saying. Or, no, it can't mean that. It must mean something else. I think prophecy is actually happening lots. Who's to do it? Well, in verse 29, there are some people who are prophets. They're gifted, recognised, regular people who come presumably prepared with a prophecy they've worked out before they come. But in verse 31, he says, all can prophesy. That is, God gives insights to all that might come during the meeting, during the Bible study. And it's to be weighed. How do you weigh it? Well, we're not told here, but it implies you can weigh it. It implies you've got some sort of straight edge, objective truth that you can weigh it against, see if it fits. What have we got like that? Well, I think what we've got like that when it comes to Jesus is the Scriptures, is the Gospel that the Scriptures communicate to us. Otherwise, we're just lost in an ocean of subjectivity. And Paul assumes prophecy can be weighed. So much of what is called prophecy today can't be weighed. I've heard somebody come in and say, listen, I'm a prophet. There's going to be revival in Perth breaking out in 2020. Get ready. Now, how do I weigh that? I can't, can I? All I can do is sit back and wait for another two years and see what happens. Or if somebody says, this week is going to be really significant, you'll meet somebody this week that's going to turn your life upside down. How do I weigh that? I've got nothing to weigh it against. But Paul thinks that prophecy is something you can weigh. I presume then it actually has to do with, is connected with, the truths that the Bible gives us. So I've got something to weigh it against. It's about the meaning and implications of God's word. Therefore, it can be edifying and it's testable. Well, how do we live this out? Well, as we've seen, this is the application of chapter 13. If you were with us last week, I hope it all just makes sense to you. The way of love, the path to follow in church is the way of love. But it's wider than that, isn't it? <laughs> when Jesus said, uh, love each other uh, like I've loved you, I presume he wasn't just talking about in church. Love is, is not something you can find to church and church gatherings. It's definitely about the way of life. For all disciples of Jesus, it's what Jesus did with his whole life. That is, the way of love leads us, encourages us to love people desperately, passionately, wanting good for them, working for their good. And the basis for evaluating all gifts and activities and contributions, particularly in church, is does it express love? With prophecy in tongues of these Tongues just doesn't do it very well. Prophecy has the capacity to do it, so it's pretty clear cut. You can apply it to any capacity, any activity, any gift and talent. Some build, some don't, so desire the ones that do. And it gives us an insight into the purpose of church. Now, I think most people, as they think about Christian church, whether they're Christians or not Christians, they sort of assume that the purpose of church is to worship God. We go to church to worship God. And so we need to begin right with a time of praise and worship, an extended time of praise and worship, because that, that actually gets us in the right place, in the right mood. That is, most people view church, I think, 
a little bit like that. You see that? See the order of it? We worship God. We come and bring our thanks and praise. We tell him how great he is. And we hope that God hears that, likes it, feels chuffed, and therefore blesses us. Is that how you think about church? It's the way most people think about church, I think. What is it? Well, it's not Christianity. That's pagan religion. That's what other religions do. It's exactly what they do. It describes them to a T, but it's not Christianity. Christianity is the opposite of that. Who took the initiative? Did we worship God and then he blessed us? No. He blessed us. He sent his son to die for us. He took the initiative in his love and grace to start a relationship, to work out a way, to create a way that we could be right with him. And we respond to what he's done with trust and worship. And it's not worship for half an hour a week, it's worship 24-7. It's the whole of our life. That's what God's worth, isn't it? And trust what he's done, all he's done for us in his grace. And so filled with faith and hope and love. Now how do you grow that response of worship and trust? Well, it's by understanding more deeply and more fully, taking to heart more readily the way in which God has blessed us in Jesus. And so this is sort of how the New Testament thinks about church, I think. You and I edify each other. You and I speak to each other. We tell each other about what God has done to bless us. We tell each other the gospel of Jesus. And what's the response to that? Well, as you tell me and I tell you about Jesus and all is done and, and you help me understand that and take it to heart and grow in it, so my trust in God grows and my joy in Him flourishes. I'm built up. I'm encouraged. We speak to each other about the ways God has blessed us in Jesus. And that's his passage in Colossians. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the gospel dwell among you as you teach and admonish one another in all wisdom by singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We sing, not to God, but to each other, which brings thankfulness in our hearts to God. That's the, that's the New Testament picture of church. And that fits with 1 Corinthians 14. All things are to be done for edification. Gospel-shaped church looks like love by edifying. Secondly, we see the importance of the mind. Oops. Um, that is, it says you can't build people up without addressing and engaging their minds. Tongues are just noise. They might move you emotionally, you might get excited, might be a great buzz about it, but Without content, without your mind being switched on, it's just a nice experience like eating a donut. Now, God's not against the emotions. He gave them to us. In fact, I hope you're so convinced of sin's stench that it moves you emotionally. Think about it. I hope you're so taken with God's grace that it moves you emotionally as you understand it. But the response starts with the mind. Does that mean Christianity is just cerebral and intellectual? Of course not. It's that the mind plays a central role in every person, whether they're intellectual or not. We all think. Our thinking leads to our convictions and our actions. That's especially true in Christianity because the gospel message is a message of what God has done. It's not just a feeling. And that's expressed in words. If it's just emotion, just hype, just excitement, you can't edify. And using your gifts... A logic goes like this. I've heard it many times. If God has given me a gift and an ability, he must want me to use it. Seems logical, doesn't it? But this chapter says it's wrong logic. 
Not true. God's given you many more gifts than you can use. But some people are given tongues and Paul's saying, no, don't use it unless it's interpreted. But if you have got gifts that edify God's people, words that point people to Jesus, things that help people understand and trust and please Jesus, use them. And God's given you responsibility to decide which gifts to use. Has he given you gifts that can edify others? Then use them. Use them and keep using them. Can you speak coherently about Jesus? Can you understand God's word and explain it to others? Then develop those gifts and use them. It's also got obvious implications for using your life. Verse 12, he says, Try to excel in those gifts that build up the church. So if God's given you gifts that build up the church, might be evangelism or teaching or instructing, then use them. And he actually says they're greater gifts than other gifts. They're even greater gifts than the gifts of the healings. Now that's hard to believe, isn't it? This is our culture because health has become our God, our idol. We think that the greatest thing you can do for anybody is give them health. No, it's not. Edifying them is more important. And that's got implications for what you do with your life. Because many here have extraordinary gifts that have the capacity to edify. Some of us need to rethink what we're doing with our lives. So which use? Use the gifts that edify the church. They're the ones to develop. They're the ones to use the max.